Thanks for listening to the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. Before we get going, I thought you might like to know that after almost four years, author events are back at Shakespeare and Company and in a reimagined event space on our first floor. We have such an exciting lineup in place for you in the coming months. There's Holly McNish and Michael Peterson in early February. Then in March, there's Danny Kane, author of How to Protect Bookstores and Why, Rachel Kushner giving us an exclusive preview of her wild new novel, Creation Lake, and Perlitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen discussing his memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Beyond that, into the spring, we have a blockbusting book-to-screen event with Atessa Moshfeg and Luke Goebel, as well as conversations with Sheila Hetty, Samantha Schweblin, Hari Kanzru and Rachel Kusk. As always, readings are free, unticketed and open to everyone, so do arrive early to secure your seat. Also make sure you keep an eye on our website, shakespeareandcompany.com, where you can sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about our upcoming events. And if you can't be at the bookshop in person, remember that you can listen in to past events here on the Shakespeare and Company interview podcast. We're so happy to be bringing writers and readers together again and look forward to seeing you at the bookshop soon. Now, sit back and enjoy the interview, whichever one you're listening to. There's a moment early on in The World and All That It Holds, Alexander Hemmons extraordinary new novel, when our protagonist, Pinto, is reflecting on the war in which he is about to be sent off to fight. Hemmons writes, Even before his basic training was over and his regiment deployed to invade Serbia, Pinto understood that there was no sense in fantasizing about different outcomes. Everything that happens is always the only thing that can happen. Everything before this moment leads to this moment. That feeling of being carried relentlessly forward by the tides of fate, of being buffeted by the currents of history, is pervasive in the world and all that it holds. And yet the novel also never loses sight of the fact that within that fate, beneath that history, there are humans living, humans loving, humans losing, and crucially, humans making decisions, as well as coming to understand the scale at which the decisions they make can count. The world and all that it holds takes us from Bosnia to Uzbekistan to China and elsewhere, covering a convulsive period of history in which the technological advances, the political turbulence and the displacement of people bear striking similarities to those of our own time. At its heart, though, not exactly beneath the grand sweep, but entwined with it, is a love story between two men, Pinto and Osman. The World and All That It Holds is the work of a novelist writing at the height of his powers, and I'm delighted to say that Alexander Hemmond joins me to discuss it today. Alexander, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Okay, so where I'd like to begin today is with, I guess, the beginning of the book. Because within the first chapter, you have two, I suppose, momentous occurrences. You have the, I hope this isn't a spoiler, but the assassination of Ferdinand, Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo in 1914, the event that is often credited as being the the catalyst for, for the First World War. And then... It, at the same time, on the same day, if for our protagonist, Pinto, you have this moment, which I'm not going to spoil by going into it in a lot of detail, but in, in the apothecary that he runs, where he has a moment of, not exactly of personal revelation, but of personal fulfillment. I'm curious to know when this book was germinating for you. Was there one or the other of these that came to you first? Was it just the character of Pinto and this setting off on the journey? Or did you have the idea of writing something that began around the same time as the beginning of the First World War and and Pinto and the character and the events grew from that. 
Well, to be honest, the, I can't remember the inception moment of the idea. I know that now it's been 13 years since I sold mm-hmm. the book on proposal to my British publisher for some reason, <laughs> and which means that it, you know, I had been thinking about it for at least 12 years. I turned it in last year, obviously, the, the, the finished book. So I don't remember what I might have thought 13 or 14 or 15 years ago. I do think that, that the assassination, June 28, 14 in Sarajevo, was the beginning and that I always thought that Pinto would be there mm-hmm. and witness it. And then there was there was the, the germ in many ways, because in my first book, there's a story about the assassination and there's an, another person present who, you know, in the story is the grandfather of the narrator who's carrying an accordion. It's a little self-referential moment in, in the, the world and all that holds. Because that assassination, it's a you know crucial thing in the history of Sarajevo and Bosnia and Europe in the end. It also marks the beginning of the 20th century, right? You can measure mm-hmm. centuries. Every 100 years, it's a new century. But if you measure, or you think of centuries, measuring them historically, as it were, mm-hmm. it is easy, and many historians have made an argument that it started with that assassination and ended in 2001 with 9-11. Because within that period, with that stretch of history, the world in, in Europe and other parts of, of the world, but you know, I was Bosnia, I was in Europe, changed shape that was then very different from the previous century and from the following century. So uh, it's the beginning of the story of Pinto, but it's the beginning of the story of the 20th century too that very moment. And in my work, I like to, my people live in history. Mm. Their bodies are in history. And they're not generals or leaders or, you know, I don't know, presidents looking out the window trying to make a difficult decision. It is all at the, as you were describing it, at a, at a, a level of survival, right? At the level mm. of touch and love and, and food mm. and, and, you know, wet feet because my body lives in history. Right. Mm-hmm. History to me is not conceptual. It's not just discourse. Of course, yeah. it's discourse too. But it's the, it is this thing that does thing to my body. There seems to be a, a tension in the concept of history. And I think we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit more as the, as the conversation goes on. But particularly concerning this, this event and this assassination, because as, as, as you describe it, and as I've read about it in, 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 our, in other books in the past, it's, it's the success, if you like, of the assassination hinged on a few a few things falling into place by chance and it could very easily not have not have happened and the archduke you know could have could have survived the could have survived the attempt i'd put in mind of the british sitcom black adder at the moment particularly the fourth season where the set in the first world war and at the moment they're talking about the what started the war and and black adder says but in the end it was just too much effort not to have a war so i'm curious about what you what you think about this do you think that this this essentially this small event in the grand scheme of things was pivotal or do you think it's more the historical context was there that it was waiting essentially for a spark of some kind and it happened to be this well it's, I mean, we will never know sadly sure. in um, other but, worlds which we will also come on to talk about right but it's also that you know everything that leads to this moment necessitates this moment and we can't it, it's, there's no point in imagining alternative outcomes mm-hmm. or as lady macbeth said what it's what's what's done cannot be undone and so it is easy to think, and when I was growing up, I was I lived in socialism, so this Marxist determinism of history, right? That the prehistory is this process that had its own logic and force and just went forth toward a better future in, in you know socialist imagination. So 
there's a strong argument to be made that the world that was marked by the presence of four major empires in the world. And so at the moment of the beginning of the book, much of the world is controlled by four major empires. And it, it's easy to imagine an argument then that those empires could not be sustained and could not survive the changes in the world, whatever they were, right? And so because we, within five years, right, three of those major empires vanished and were mm -hmm. broken into smaller countries or changed entirely their social order because the, those empires were rooted in the divine right of kings. It was mm -hmm. a the dominant social order in much of the world that lasted for hundreds of years and seemed the only imaginable possible order. And then it just crashed, which mm -hmm. should be a lesson to us now, right? We think, oh, capitalism, America, all that, it lasts forever. <laughs> It could be gone, you know, before our children start going to school or my children to college. <laughs> and, and so this inevitability, it's tempting, right? But at the same time, for us, for people who live in history, you don't see it as history. You don't see it as a process. Wherever you may have grown up, you see it as this thing affecting your body, right? And another Another, there's a moment in the book when Pinto and Osman are in, you know, in the trenches in 1916 in, in Galicia and Western Ukraine, and shells are raining upon, upon their heads. But they don't call that the Brusilov Offensive, which is what it right. was, which is how it's remembered in history. It's just shells raining on their heads. Yeah. And so that, you know, that the, the point of contact with history, at least for these characters, is violence. Mm -hmm. And so you cannot sort out violence that is historical or just random. That's not how it works. Yeah, and yeah. so you can make an argument that the, the rotting of the empires, mm -hmm. right? And the fourth empire just ended with Boris Johnson and Brexit <laughs> in a clown show. And so that, you know, it was necessary, but we will never know. And we, mm -hmm. it's also possible to imagine there would, would have been alternative ways in which the empires would have disintegrated. But we also will never know. Yeah, and that yeah. history is both inevitable and it offers endless possibilities at any given moment. Mm -hmm. When you were when you were going back to uh, to research this book, like I made a slightly glib comparison, I guess, in the in the introduction between the technological changes of that epoch and what we're living through today, and I think there are some interesting parallels to be made. But one thing that really struck me, there was a moment when uh, near the beginning of the book where I think it's some 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 people who come to to Pinto's apothecary and uh, you talk describe those 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 ancient peasants look around as if they just disembarked from a ramshackle time machine. And there does seem to be something about this moment, I guess, at this point in the industrial revolution and at this maybe particular time and place in Europe where that clash between a real ancient way of living and the beginning of genuine modernity was perhaps starker than any other historical transition I can think of. Well, you know, Bosnian, like many other languages, has layers of words that came from different other languages and that are entirely historical. So there are a lot of Turkish words and Arabic and Persian words by way of Turkish because Bosnia was part of the Ottoman Empire for a few hundred years. Mm -hmm. And then there's a layer of words that came from German because Bosnia was occupied by the Austro-Hungarian Empire in, for 40 years or so. And many of those words are sort of the simple technology, which we would call now simple technology. The words for zipper, the mm. word for zipper to this day is Reisverschluss. Mm -hmm. The word for screwdriver is Schraftzieger. The, and there are all these you know, words for the parts of a car engine and, that are old, old German. Mm -hmm. Which and, and it's hardly surprising, but the Austrian Empire, they 
for the purpose of exploitation, not for you know, for the to help the local population. Sure. They build the, the the train system. They cut through things to build tunnels. They built mm-hmm. all these things. And there's a layer in the architecture of Sarajevo and Bosnia that is recognizably Austro-Hungarian, mm-hmm. but it's also technological, right? Mm-hmm. This it has only happened. It's a relatively short time for a province to be part of an empire. Forty years. Bosnia was occupied mm-hmm. in 1878, and it was over in 1918. In those 40 years, or in fact, fewer than 40 years, because, you know, during the war, they didn't quite build railroads. There, were, there was a whole layer of technology that is now still recognizable in, in language. And so Pinto finds himself at that point. What the Bosnia becoming part of the empire also allowed was, well, he, there were Viennese students. Mm-hmm. People still refer to some story, talking about significant, you know, historical personalities in the past. They would call them, he was, they would say he was a Viennese student, Beijing student, because there's a whole different system of education as compared to the Ottoman Empire, and so on and so on. So Pinto, I, this is another reason why I want to start the book at that point. He's in that, at that, what do I, watershed moment, mm-hmm. right, which seems to him before the Archduke is assassinated, the beginning of a new century. The Archduke came in a car that was yeah. pre- uh, cre- built in, in Prague. The Škoda factory, a mm-hmm. car, a car as big as a as a as a ship, and also Sarajevans to this day are still proud of it. That the first streetcar that Sarajevo had a streetcar before Vienna had it, and that was because the Austrians were experimenting <laughs> with it, <laughs> not because they liked you know Bosnians more than the Viennese. And there are pictures of streetcars you can find or postcards, in fact, streetcars pulled by horses from 1904. Mm-hmm. So it was a, I guess it was a kind of, you, you, we would call it cultural shock right now, but that's inaccurate. It's a historical shock. Suddenly, new, entirely new reality emerges, and it's, it's like a blimp, mm. historically speaking, for 30 years or so, and then it just vanishes. The whole structure just crashes on top of everyone. And that's, I mean, that's terrible for, it's still terrible for, for Bosnians now, let alone what it was like back then, but it's narratively useful, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that, that's really interesting, that idea as well of the, the, the layer of language of technology being wholly imported from, from the Germanic as well, because that, that implies it was in no way an organic arrival onto, onto the, the Bosnian scene. It was just placed down. It was an invasion almost from, from the top. And, that, and you can understand why then that would lead to sort of frictions in the, the society and also frictions in the psyche when you have this whole sense, sense of concepts and, and, and vocabulary just arriving wholesale rather than coming up from the yes. grassroots. And it came in a shape of, of the empire. And the mm-hmm. Bosnians called, for some reason, Austrians, Schwabe. And that's still the word for German-speaking people, slightly der- derogatory. Right. <laughs> Schwabia was connected to all that, right? Mm-hmm. And so... People still tell you can still find stories about the, the things that the Schwabo did, that the German did, or the Austrian mm-hmm. did. And, and and I have never been in Sarajevo, but you, you there's a old town. This was built during the Ottoman Empire. You, it looks very much the Charsia, like the mm-hmm. Charsia in Istanbul. I've never been there, but my sister, who is an expert on such things, mm-hmm. she says yes, it's much the same, and it's common in all the countries and cities that at some point were part of the Ottoman Empire. 
And then you cross, and there's a, literally a line where an art group created an installation on, on the on the ground, on the pavement that you know, points to the east and points to the west. And you cross the line from east to west because you cross from the old Ottoman Charsia downtown with wooden shops where the old he was, where his father had the old farmers, and then he you cross in the Austrian thing. And then if you keep going, you get into socialism. Right. And, you, <laughs> and then you get into, you know, capitalism, which is the other part of the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just dwell a little bit on Sarajevo, because even though the, without giving too much away, the book begins there and doesn't really get back there for, for, for its duration, it's the, the city hangs over the book in a very, a very profound way. Now, at a moment, it's described as the city behind God's back. And so I just wonder, you've already given us a bit of a bit of context about Sarajevo and about his history. But could you just expand a little bit on that idea for, for maybe listeners who haven't a particular knowledge of, of the city? Well, I mean, it's a translation of a Bosnian idiom. Oh, really? Um, and if something is, you know, far away from everything, it's behind God's back. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> And, and the other idiom along the same lines is, you know, where God said good night. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I added and never came back in the morning. But but there's this, it's a tragic sense, and this is sustained to the history of Sarajevo and Bosnia, the, both the sense that this, as far as the Western centers of power, it is always on periphery. And historically, mm-hmm. it was on the periphery, it was the westernmost province of the Ottoman Empire. And there was the easternmost province in the Balkans, certainly, of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And, and the recent troubles are partly rooted in that because the populations were changing empires, right, without leaving their village mm-hmm. ever. And so, which on the upside led to a multicultural, multilingual communal living by necessity mm-hmm. because and this important aspect of the character of Pinto, right? He's of Sephardic background because his mm-hmm. family came from the Iberian Peninsula, who knows how, to the westernmost province of the, of the Ottoman Empire, because the Ottoman Empire, after the Jews were expelled from the Iberian Peninsula at the end of the 15th century, absorbed much of that population. They, they did not discriminate against them. You know, there were ghettos and ethnically organized neighborhoods, but they were not, you know, there was no prosecution, right, and in the way that was in the Catholic countries or Christian countries. So then Pinto also is a Viennese student, so he speaks German, right? He also speaks Bosnian. And there are all these other people who speak various various languages at the same time. So this multi, how would I put it? The multitude of possibilities in such a context, right, is related to the fact that Bosnia was always on the fringes of, Mm. of, uh, of empires and historical events. But at the same time, you know, empires start falling apart at the edges, right? Or if you historically look, the trouble starts at the edges. The Goths mm-hmm. came to Rome right. <laughs> from the edges of the Roman Empire, right? There are all of these yeah. conspiracies and coups in the history of the Roman Empire or the Turkish Empire or the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, they, that, the court conspiracies, that's one thing. But when the people from, from the fringes start coming in or leaving, going to the other side, that's when the empire changes shape and the, the, mm-hmm. the center then shakes too, possibly. And and that's Pinto and Osman, and not just in Sarajevo, but throughout the book, they're always on the fringe mm-hmm. of, of some imperial or colonial 
project, right? They, at no point are they in anything resembling a functioning society or nation state or anything, right? Or with a place that has a government that is stable or, you know, takes into consideration the welfare of the population. They're moving through a perpetually unstable historical context. One thing that puts me in mind of actually is when I was reading, there was a sense of, you know, having grown up in the UK and having been taught the, the, the history of the early 20th century from a very Western European centric point of view. It, it really did strike me that this is the, the story of what was going on in the East was something that was very neglected in, in the, the teaching of the, the First World War and, and afterwards in, in Britain, or at least in Britain of the 1990s. <laughs> I can't speak for how it is now. But, and then based on what you just said as well, it seems almost that perhaps, could we say that part of the, the project is not a great word, but of the, of the novel was in a sense to, to center the fringes, to show that there is a, an importance and you know, a significance to, to what goes on in these fringes. And for the people who are living there, the fringes are the center, and it's important to remember that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, from the very beginning, and this I know for sure, they were always going to go east. So mm-hmm. Sarajevo is the westernmost point in their travel, right? And they keep going east all the way mm-hmm. to Shanghai precisely for that reason. And, and for a long time, I thought there would be no Americans at all in mm-hmm. it. Just America is too far west. But then, mm-hmm. you know, H- Henry <laughs> But then the world showed. is round. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I found out recently. <laughs> and so then Henry Kranz showed up in, in the elevator. So I think, you know, the, the con- concept of history has dominated Western thought and then by extension other countries. Is mm-hmm. History is generated and organized and conceptualized around power and therefore the centers of power. History happens in the imperial capital, right? And then it has the ripples reach the far out fringes. Mm-hmm. eventually, right? And so, I mean, we can have a separate podcast about all that, and the colonial underpinning of that proposition and, and everything, sure. but I'm not a historian. But what interests me is that where, if my body needs to survive, my body is the center of history for people, mm-hmm. right? If Pinto and Osman are in the trenches in Galicia, they are on the fringes of life, which is mm-hmm. far more difficult situation than the fringes of an empire. And because I guess if we think or if people think that a country or an empire, empire by definition has porous borders because it's not organized around citizenship, but around territory. So they don't have to convince Bosnians that they're Austrians when they occupy Bosnia. They don't care what language they speak as long as they obey the social order and pay the taxes and, you know, submit to exploitation. So whereas a nation states, everyone on this side of, of, the, of the border is French. They speak mm-hmm. French. And then you, there's a cut and there, there are Germans on the other side. And so the fringes are porous and, and therefore are always part of some contest. Right? Mm-hmm. The, the scenes and the whole section of the book takes place in Tashkent. It's part of the great game. There are books mm-hmm. and books about the great game, the rivalry between the Russian and the British Empire, right? Mm-hmm. But what they were fighting over were the fringes from their point of view, right? Who's going to get Central Asia? Who's going to get Afghanistan, right? There's thousands of miles from the courts, right? And they don't care about local population. They just mm-hmm. want the territory. Yeah. And so for me, I wanted not to prove a point about the organization of history in, the, in Western discourse, but the, the fact that history is everywhere at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. And the hierarchy of importance, it does not quite work for people who are trying to survive or get back home. 
Yeah. And yeah, so yeah. there's a, you know, a manner of approaching human experience, scientifically or historically, reducing it to phenomena, right? Mm -hmm. Where Pinto, Osman, or Bosnians like myself and my family are statistical occurrences. Right. A certain amount of population went over there and a certain amount of population died. Mm -hmm. And that's not how I experience history or life. I mean, how mm -hmm. people who have no access to power experience history or life. Mm -hmm. And my my entire work is about that. And mm -hmm. not because I went to grad school, but because that's how <laughs> history affected my, which I did, but because that's how history affected my, everyone I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think one of the ways that that's conveyed in, in the novel, and indeed I think in probably any successful novel in a sense, is through the power of the character in a way, you know, so that the character of Pinto doesn't become a historical statistic or a historical symbol. We need to, we need to believe in him. We need to get to know him. We need to get to perhaps to like him or to, you know, to like or loathe either way. In this case, Pinto, I think we come, we come to love him. But could you talk a little bit about how you got to know Pinto? Was it, was it a character that, came to you quite fully formed did you did you hear his voice and 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 he just had to transmute him onto the page or was it a more step-by-step -step process it was entirely step-by-step -step. i i mean i i like to compare writing a novel to building cathedral with toothpicks mm -hmm. from toothpicks and which takes a long time i imagine <laughs> and probably use toothpicks too not not brand new stack to, uh -huh. to pick the toothpicks and glue them together it's endless. I had I had conceptualized Pinto early on. Obviously, he was Sephardic. He was he was educated. He was multilingual. He was multi. I would put he he was Sarajevan, very importantly, obviously, and uh, and he was contemplative, a poetic soul, right? Mm -hmm. And the proposal that I mentioned earlier, he and Osman were just friends, mm -hmm. and I can't remember exactly when or exactly. It wasn't a single moment, but gradually I realized that it would be better narratively and also in terms of my engagement with the characters if they were lovers. Mm. And then he became a, a, a gay is a identity that was not available at the time. So sure. I, 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 it, it's a little awkward, but I use the word homosexual. Mm -hmm. And so, and then you put, this is how I work and imagine stories. I put a character that has some shape within some narrative domain say Sarajevo, June 28, 1914, and then what? You let them be there and see, and I imagine how, what they would feel, what they would see, how it, what they would think, what would attract them. And the, to me, this inha which inhabiting another person, but not as fully formed, but inhabiting them in moments, mm. right? And so if I, I was looking for in research, this is the kind of thing that I assume some novelists at least do, I needed to find out what weather was, what, what was the weather like on June 28th, 1914. And so I, and I can't remember where I found it, but I tracked it down. It was a sunny day. So then the sun comes to the window, right? And it's, and then I had to look up what time was, you know, the Archduke moving around town. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and actually I've, I don't remember now where it was. I think it was an afternoon, right? Mm -hmm. And so then I imagine where, and no one would know there's the difference then I would imagine what, what angle the sun rays would be there. And then mm -hmm. if you have sun rays coming through the windows, then what if there's something written on the windows? And then what shadow would that throw on the floor? And then what floor would they have there? And you get that those are the toothpicks. 
and mm -hmm. it takes more than 12 years to build. Yes. <laughs> I do not re recommend it <laughs> generally well, to young writers. Yeah, that's totally obsessive. Well, I mean, but the result, the result perhaps justifies the, the work involved. And actually this, I was going to ask you as a, at the end, but uh, just you describing the levels of obsessive research there puts me in mind of James Joyce. And then, of course, you were, you know, you were one of our readers in our Ulysses project last year. You described yourself as like, I think you described yourself as a Ulysses fanatic. And there is in this character, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a passing character, but there is a, the only other Jew in the regiment that Pinto serves in is called Bloom. It's spelled yeah. differently. Yeah. But I, I, just, I, I just wanted to check in whether that was a deliberate nod to, to Joyce and your, and your fanaticism. <laughs> It was. It was also, I know, I, I, the biggest state company in the history of Bosnia and Yugoslavia was run by someone called Emerick Bloom, who was a heroic mm. person in our family because both of my parents worked for the company. And so, so when Rahela goes back to Sarajevo toward the end of the book, she runs into a Bloom. And mm -hmm. it's a bleak reference to that guy, but absolutely to, to Leopold. <laughs> I, I, my bachelor's thesis was on Ulysses and it was I just needed to write a paper of 25 pages that was a bachelor's thesis but I got yeah, yeah. so obsessed that I worked on it for a year and a half <laughs> and then I and then I had unfolding schemes and graphs of leitmotif chains and, mm. and it, it was 75 pages this was mind you this is how old I am written on a typewriter no computer so I have to wow. repaint the page <laughs> with all the typos and editing things so I that that's that's how I became a Joyce fanatic and in, from those days I've always been I mean it's nothing but a collection of details processed through human consciousness and yeah. so Dublin appears in their consciousness it could be reconstructed from their consciousness on that mm -hmm. particular day but I think that killed me the story that killed me, the famous story, when he, James sent his brother Stanislaus to 7 Eccles Street to see yes. if one could jump over the fence. Yes. <laughs> Who would know? <laughs> Who would know? But I love that so much. It's a thing that I would do. Yeah. I, would, I probably, well, my sister wouldn't do it, though. She would say, go fuck yourself. But <laughs> wisely, wisely. But Stanislaus jumped over the fence and reported, you know, yes, you can do it. So Leopold Bloom jumps over the fence, 7 Eccles Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which is interesting brings us back to, to what you were saying about the research and the weather and things like that. And it also puts me in mind of oh, the director's name is escaping me now. The director of Funny Games, Michael, Michael Haneke. Haneke. Yes, and and I remember seeing an interview with him, and he said he was talking about how, um, for example, on one of his sets. If there's a, a collection of books, if he thinks the character would have alphabetized them, he will make sure they are alphabetized. And he said, even if, you know, they are never, the camera never focuses on them. It's something yeah. the audience won't notice. It's something which adds to the general sense of the scene. And from the way you described the, your, your research about Sarajevo, for example, on that day, it's, it sounds like that's important to you as well. Like you don't, you might not notice it, but you feel it. Well, yes, because, I mean, this really goes back to this, what I was saying earlier, a body in history, right? And mm -hmm. so I experienced my life primarily through my senses first, right? Which I then conceptualized and organized in narratives, right? And so, mm -hmm. and as we all know, that a lot of memories and memories are a form of narrative, right? Organized around sensory stimulations or, or involuntary memories, but also memory, general memory of being in Paris in 2018, what it was like. And so to be in the world means to be in the world with your body. And then that body is also a consciousness. And so for me to be able to imagine and inhabit the character, I had to know what they had for breakfast. 
mm-hmm. they're having breakfast in the book, right? And so it doesn't matter. It can it could be you know hot dogs, it could be steak, <laughs> but whatever it is, it is it is the same along the same lines as Michael Haneke, right? I need mm-hmm. to understand them, but not their ethics and philosophies, generalities that mm-hmm. they would present in some kind of like discourse situation. Mm-hmm. But what if they're itchy? What part of body is itchy? And this is these are the toothpicks, and 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 this is how one temporarily and imaginatively becomes someone else while writing. And if that works, then I hope that the reader can not relate to the character, but also find a way to inhabit that imaginatively inhabit that character, mm-hmm. and inhabit them as they are, not in terms of the overlapping generalities. We all human, of course we are. Yeah. So to, to me, what is universal is. Not typicality, mm-hmm. but it is the specificity of experience. What Danilo Kish referred to as the multitude of details that constitute a human life. Mm-hmm. Right? We all have genetically we're identical, regardless of race and glands and all that. Right? I mean, but the minor differences constitute our mm-hmm. bodies as we are. So you and I are different. They would not confuse us. You are handsome and I'm not. <laughs> but also but also in terms of experience, right? Everyone had parents. Everyone had a, a place where they were born. Everyone lived somewhere for a little while. Everyone likes certain things and doesn't like other things. I mean, food and drinks and whatever. And so collecting those details, those toothpicks of existence mm-hmm. is how I construct human consciousness. And mm-hmm. then when I build that, house enough or that cathedral with toothpicks I can get inside it as it were while I'm working on it and once they are sufficiently built and this is a crucial point for me in my work I start loving them Mm -hmm. I mean loving them I want to see what else they can do and how else they live in the world and I I love them I find more things to love in them and not love them because they're like pets Mm -hmm. But the, I, I don't want to sound, sound pretentious or you know ambitious. But the way that the creator loves what they created, sure, yeah, yeah, and, no, no. and then they reach an autonomy in, in which it's not because I created them. That is that is the really point of unmooring, where there's a logic to their life and consciousness that I just have to respect. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and follow it's- wherever they go. Is there is there an, an added challenge? Like we talked a lot about the sense of the body in history, and of course the what Pinto and Osman go into the the experience of of a fighting in the, the the First World War, which was I mean I don't know if it was uniquely barbaric, but it was certainly you know the first mechanized war. It reached a certain level of barbarism, which wars at least up to that point had not had not reached. Where is you know you're talking about getting to know a character by what they've had for breakfast, where they're itching, but getting to know that character to write that character in a situation so extreme which one has not necessarily experienced as a writer is it that groundwork in the past of getting inside them that then allows you to project into that that unknown the situation yeah absolutely so you know and it's all done by way of imagination i have not experienced war at all but I have had friends who were in trenches um, mm-hmm. recently in Bosnia, and then I read books, and then there's a, a, a cultural and historical knowledge of what it was like, including mm-hmm. this, which I also read, the trench warfare in you know in Galicia in 1916, and the Brasilov offensive. A million soldiers died in that operation. It's mm-hmm. inconceivable. 
it was exceptionally brutal compared to the previous war. The biggest previous war was the French-Prussian War in 1871. Which yeah, yeah. 100, I, I think it's, let's say 750,000. It could be 150,000 people killed. Whereas in World War One, it's more than 20, around 20 million, I think. It's in, uh, inconceivable. There was, there was no precedent for that. Second World War had a precedent, which was the First World War. Mm-hmm. But the leap, which is directly related to the leap technology, what we talked about earlier, it was just wiping out in, entire populations. Twenty-five right? of the British officer corps died in World War One. There was all Oxford mm-hmm. boys and Cambridge yeah. boys, right? They were privileged, and then un, 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 I mean, not not statistically known populations from different towns and different territories, and so to put them in that situation, that is. Believe me, it's not easy for a writer. I also interviewed Bosnians who were in the war for a different project, so I had an idea of some of those things. It's not even the details. I mean, disembowelment. Imagine disembowelment mm-hmm. is not that great, but also it's not that hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. You just bowels leave the body, right? <laughs> you don't want to get into the details of, of the anatomy exactly, right? It is imaginable enough. Mm-hmm. But then I had to spend time in the trench, and then had mm-hmm. to go through all that and had to, you know, that's why it took 12 years. You couldn't just mm-hmm. do it every day, get up in the morning, have coffee. Let me write some, you know, trench yeah, warfare yeah. today, then I'll go <laughs> and watch a soccer game. They had made love like this before in a trench in the woods on a haystack in the barracks bathhouse where everyone was naked anyway. The first time, the night after Pinto had offered him a drink, shortly before they were sent to war in Serbia, Osman simply slipped into his bunk after everyone else in the barracks had fallen asleep. He nudged Pinto for space, and when Pinto moved over, he put his arm across his chest and his face against his neck as if to sniff him. They had touched as if inadvertently, locked eyes and smiled at each other, which inescapably made the hair on the back of Pinto's neck bristle. But before Osman had slipped into his bunk, everything could have been denied, interpreted as an excessive sold-out friendship, as a joke, a misunderstanding. That first time, however, there could be no misinterpretation of Osman's moving his hand onto Pinto's stomach, then kissing his temple as Pinto petrified with possibilities, stared at the underside of the upper bunk where various sold-out names were carved in. He then turned to face and kissed Osman, and while the innocent Bosnians snored and grunted around them, they touched all the parts of each other they could reach without undressing. When the windows paled with the new day and Osman returned to his bed, Pinto stayed awake and bombed in the haze that follows pleasure and spent the time before they all had to rise, worrying that Osman would avoid him, maybe even hate him for what they'd done, denying that it had ever happened. But he found courage later that day to approach Osman and say, how come you never tell me any stories? To which Osman said, we are bound to spend a lot of time together. I'll tell you every story I know. Before the day was out, Osman traded his bunk and moved above Pinto and would slip down night after night until their unit was deployed to Serbia. They slept together in holes in the ground, shared their food and water. Osman was a plain Jäger, Pinto a sanitat soldat, or as everyone in the company called him, the Hedgen, never Dr. Rafa. When they got separated in a battle or Pinto stayed behind in the field hospital, 
a cannonball of worry would grind his intestines until Osman returned unharmed. There was a day in Serbia when Osman got separated from the patrol he was in, and Pinto nearly lost his mind, searching through the pile of corpses ready to be burned, unwrapping the mold face of a soldier who had a hole in his sock to discover it was not Osman. And when he came back the following day, limping and using his rifle as a staff, Pinto wept, pressing his face against Osman's chest. By the time they made it to the trenches of Galicia, Osman's telling stories to Pinto was no longer necessary for their coupling. There was no way of denying what was presently happening either. Whatever world an imperial army surrounded them tonight receded into the long darkness, so Pinto could turn his face to Osman and open his mouth to receive his tongue. Derkenda suddenly sat up, and the two lovers froze, holding their breaths until he looked around in some confusion, the adepts that he was, shouted at his dream enemy a promise that he would fuck his dead mother, and lay back down. He's dreaming, Osman whispered. So am I, Pinto said. There had to be other soldats who knew what Osman and Pinto were doing, as there must have been others who did it too, and still others for whom two men fucking was so unimaginable they wouldn't believe it possible even if it was to be happening right before their very eyes. At first, Osman was more cautious than Pinto because he claimed he wanted to get married after the war and have children to acquire what all normal people, he said, called the proper life. But after war devoured all they'd known and were sure of all of the peaceful future they could imagine, it was Osman who always sought excuses to get away from other soldats so he could touch and kiss Pinto, get inside him to come in groans and grunts and screams that scared forest animals and attracted curious peasant children. They had to bribe with dry bread and cigarettes to stay silent. And it was Osman who suggested that they share the Untertritt with Dirkenda and Smile Tokmak, not only because they were endlessly loyal, but also because it was obvious that they would never believe their ears and eyes, even if they saw Pinto and Osman fucking. The four of them were a family now, Osman and Pinto, the parents, the two peasants, they are not so bright children. There's one, there's one moment where you write that the pampered city boys who could not bear the boredom and blistered feet and infections and bullet-torn flesh, so they threw themselves at death as if it would cure it all. And that is set in, almost in contrast to, to Pinto and Osman. And there is this sense, and this perhaps comes back to a little bit what you were talking about earlier about living on the fringes, that when you've never had that stability and that framework of the, the, the luxury of you know the the so-called pampered city boys, that it's not so much that the conditions of the of the trenches become more bearable, but that you're in some way better adapted to to those extreme conditions. Well, I mean, if you are, if you are, if your life is in survival mode before the war, right, then, yeah. then it continues to be in survival mode in the war. And those for whom a life before the war was a life of relative or total privilege, they have a harder time adjusting, mm-hmm. right? There's also total randomness in the war. That's the horrible point of the war, that you don't. There's, there's no way to predict who's going to live and who's going to die. So everyone wants to live, and they want to kill everyone else so they could survive. That's the energy of war. Yeah. But people position themselves in relation to the instances of the world, you know, differently. And this is what individualizes us too, right? And so yeah. it's the thing that I try to explain to my students. You walk into a room full of other people, and take different seats, and then everyone sees that room differently while we are all sharing the experience. It's basic, you know, not paradox, but the tension in human life. We all so highly individualized, think there's no one like me in the world, and of course you look around and everyone is exactly like you, while also not being like you at all. And so this negotiation between 
typicality, universality, and the need to belong to a group and identify yourself in, in some social hierarchy. And also thinking, well, there's no one like me in the world. And I don't mean this in terms of superiority, but in terms of combination of details, right? No one, sure. no one has had these thoughts before because they have never been, no one else has been in my body before. And so I, I, the whole logic of my writing is to put people in situations and imagine how they would react. Mm -hmm. But imagining both from the point of view of my individual experience, how, what would I do there, right? But also uh, if they're sufficiently built, what would they do there? Mm -hmm. How would they behave? I have no idea what I would do if uh, shells start raining on top of my head. Yeah. Of course, I like things that I would be brave and this and that, but <laughs> collectively I would just be terrified and, and paralyzed. I would not be able to think at all. I mean, it's yeah. a strange reaction. And so finding that, that shape of someone else and while, who also contains some part of you by necessity, it's because it's the language that comes from my head. Mm -hmm. is, is the challenge. And to me, writing, writing fiction at least, is always extending you, uh, from personal space into other people's space, into public space, and then into the unknown, whatever is behind right. that. I mean, it's not the same process, not just ripples, but in different directions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that I mean, I, I maybe in a sense, it could be considered just a detail in the book, but it really struck me is the line where you write, since the war had begun, Pinto had been fully cured of the desire to write poetry. And you spoke earlier, you described him as a poetic sensibility. And I think there is a tendency, perhaps, among writers and amongst readers and amongst book lovers to, to hold up this poetic sensibility, the, the creative sensibility as being something that if, if one was to lose it at the moment, one would want to to get backed at some point. Like so, and yet it's, I always found with, I found with Pinto this, you know, well, you, the word cured is a, is a fascinating choice in itself. Like it's something which he doesn't regret once it's gone in a way. There's always something which it's, which is not to dismiss the value of, of poetry or art, but just perhaps in the, I don't know, in the context of what happens in his life, he, what is it? He recognizes the, the inherent luxury rather than the essentialness of it? Well, I mean, depends how, that's a very interesting question. There's some <laughs> other, at some other point, he says something like his desire to write poetry evaporated like a tear in the sun, which of right. course could be an important, right? That, that line. Mm -hmm. Because he's cured of desire to write poetry, but his mind is still poetic. Mm -hmm. And so you can think of a poetry as a, a public exercise of, or public expression of inner thoughts or engagement right. with language for which you need an audience, you need response, and you need discourse, and, and you need publishing, and you need bookstores and all that. And that, it's not available because it's part of a social structure that is not available to him mm -hmm. after that. And, and to write poetry in the trenches presumes that there will be a life after this where you mm -hmm. could do all that poetry stuff, have readings in Vienna cafes and all this. Right. But if you think, if one thing of poetry, like storytelling, is a sense of human need, a way to organize and conceptualize experience, right? In other words, to be a storyteller, you don't have to write stories. To be a poet, mm -hmm. you don't have to write poetry, right? I, I believe firmly that um, we organize experience by way of narratives and by way of language, including organizing language in what, if written and published, would look like poetry. Right. In right. images, in metaphors, in metonymical structures. Mm -hmm. right? So he, he retains his poetic, reflective engagement with the world right? and his obsession with languages, several languages, mm -hmm. while the whole operation, indulgent operation of poetry as fine art 
is no longer available because mm-hmm. there's no world in which that poetry could be read by someone else. Mm-hmm. That that obsession with languages is fascinating. And I think from a, just a technical point in the book as well, that so the you know the novel is writ is in English and was was written in English, and yet there's something, and I'm not quite sure how you do it, that that we feel the presence of lots of different languages. Like you drop words in here or there, words which we may not know where they're from, but we understand their meaning in context. And it, But it felt like, I can only imagine it must have been quite a technical challenge to, to, to have a book which is so replete with languages and dialects, and some of them public, some of them pigeons, some of them just between small groups of people, and still, that still maintains a coherent whole for the, for the reader. Well, I always want him, as I was saying earlier, I always want him to be multilingual. That is to have a multilingual consciousness. And I, I assume you're multilingual and at least... Bilingual. Um, <laughs> multilingual, <laughs> fine. But you have a... I think, you know, uh, to be monolingual is to have a... A, a multilingual mind is multidimensional. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. But I will also say, and this is crucial for Pinto and also for a way to read the book, that while working on this and imagining Pinto and his situation... And, and talking to people and reading up and all that. There's a notion in linguistics of macaronic language. The, the easiest and best and most available example is that immigrants in a, in a new country, they will combine within the same sentence the words from two or more languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, it, it's available in a situation of intimacy and where people are, you know, people will want to hear what you want to say. Mm-hmm. And it's also functional. Like, can you give me that thing over there? And you can't think of the word for that thing in English, and then you use the Bosnian word. Or you're speaking Bosnian to your friends and you can't think of the word in Bosnian for that thing, and then you use that word, right? Mm-hmm. And over time, those words that were, or those, that macaronic structure becomes the language. Mm-hmm. I mean, English became macaronic in the 12th yes. century, right? And as I was saying earlier, the layers of Bosnian words, right? Mm-hmm. There was no word in Bosnian for Schrafzieger, and so, macaronically, they would insert the German word Verschraftsieger because who's going to, while fixing something and working on it, who's going to try to think of a proper word for the Bosnian word for the for the Schraftsieger? Right. So, yeah. so a multilingual mind is inherently macaronic because, it, in fact, there are studies that show that the, the, a multilingual or bilingual bilingual is multilingual. Multilingual mind is processes language and reality somewhat differently. Mm-hmm because it tests possibilities. Which word is appropriate here? And so I wanted Pinto to have not only multilingual mind, but a macaronic mind, mm-hmm. because to him, there's no difference between those words. It's all the, the languages of his consciousness. Mm-hmm. And so to translate that or to uh, italicize foreign words means that there would be hierarchy of languages in his consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. right. And it was somewhat risky. I knew because, you know, that people will complain, well, look at these foreign words here. We don't like foreign words in English <laughs> language, right? But English doesn't have foreign words as such, right? It's a, And so, but I thought, ah, why not? Mm-hmm. It's also true that there are probably under a thousand foreign words or sentences, in the sentences, a fewer sentences, obviously, but foreign words, foreign, non-English words, all of them are foreign to me, non-English words in the book, which is more than a hundred thousand words, less than 1%. And it's, I find it strange. I'm too vain, so I can't, Resist reading comments online. It torments me daily. But people, <laughs> people complain about all these languages. Some people complain about the language because they, they just, why, why do that, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I, it, without that, there's no pinto. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. You used the term multidimensional, and it struck me that one of the, I guess, one of the recurring motifs in the book is this idea of, I suppose, a slightly paradoxical idea of this is the the the, the only possible world. It's like when I ask you to speculate on if the you know Archduke hadn't been assassinated, you're like, well. There's not really much point because he was assassinated. And yet there's this idea, I guess, from if I remember rightly, from the the, the stories that Pinto was told as a boy about the, the Holy One kept creating worlds and destroying them, creating them and destroying them until until arriving at this one. And it's that sense of that opens up a sense of possibility, but also a sense of inevitability in a way. And I was wondering if you, well, I suppose this is a double pronged question. If you could expand a little bit on this, the importance of this idea of of the many worlds to to the novel and to Pinto. And also, and this is perhaps a question you could dismiss out of hand, but a lot of people will know that recently you worked on the, the most recent Matrix film. And of course, there is something, I, I suppose, a certain parallel to be drawn between these ancient legends that Pinto is referring to and the multidimensional worlds that we encounter in modern science fiction films like The Matrix. That's, that's a great question of questions. Well, I think... The you know there's a in modern physics there's a an idea that perhaps there are simultaneously existing multiple worlds which are mutually exclusive that is you can't be in both of them it's, we are in this one and there's someone just like us perhaps in the next one but I like the idea this comes from the Talmud or the Talmudic thought that God why and we, Christianity also it's common that you know we think that well, I don't think I'm not Christian but people think that God created this world that's it mm-hmm. it's the best of possible worlds and God would not be, you know, experimenting because God would know how to make a perfect thing, right? By virtue of being perfect. But in Talmud, for some theological reason that I, you know, cannot fully get into or because I don't really know, the idea that God would create one world and just arbitrarily destroy it, why not? And then create another one and arbitrarily destroy it, and why not? It is interesting to me, particularly since it really fits the structure of the book and Pinto's experience of life. Here's the world, a century of progress, right? A handsome officer in his apotheque and and our Duke is in outside coming, you know, to our town behind God's back. Everything looks great. Boom, it's all gone. Mm-hmm. In a minute, right? And then they're in the trenches of Lidze. It's not great, the world, obviously. <laughs> but even that ends. And then another yeah. one begins. And the book is structured really with chapters that are or sections that are discrete, in which there are sharp cuts between periods and experiences, and if you wish, the worlds, mm. right, that are, that are built there. And that is important. It's thing that I dealt with in my other book. Mm. Displaced people traumatized by people traumatized by violence, individually or collectively, they see their experience and the world in as fragmented, as mm. broken, mm. as shattered. And then to organize that or reorganize, restore some order, I guess storytelling is one of the ways where you string those fragments into some sequence and there are gaps and holes and ruptures and you can't, it, it's never going to be smooth again, but that's how you do it. But it also, one self-perception, right? If we live in a stable society in the same city or country or whatever, Western world, your entire life without being traumatized individually or collectively, then you can imagine easily that there's a continuity in your own life, mm-hmm. that you're the same person you were at the age of four. Mm-hmm. And then you build the story of your life or construct the story of your life around that continuity, mm-hmm. right? But I know that I was not, 
the way I at the age of four the way I am now because my when I was four that was before the war in Bosnia and now I'm 58 and there are all other other bodily differences <laughs> but in terms of the continuity is ruptured and. Imagine being in the war, losing people. What's happening in Ukraine now, right? There's this whole cities are destroyed with yeah. entire families wiped out, right? To build that continuity and so, well, I've always been the same person. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work. And so I, a lot of my work is structured in that's dealing with fragmentation, right? Mm-hmm. Pushing it to the edge of organization, but then also pushing it back so that fractured, fragmented structure is retained. And so mm-hmm. this... You know, Talmudic idea that God creates and restores world, create or rebuilt and not rebuilds, destroys and then builds a new one, destroys and builds a new one. That entirely complies with the, my experience, but certainly Pinto's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that also brings me on to I think it's probably going to have to be the final thing we talk about today because we've, we're running out of time. But there's I think there's a third type of experience in a way. So you described like the people who live their entire lives with a certain consistency in one world without this fragmentation. Then you have people who are, which may have been your experience, which is a sense of consistency up until the moment of fracture. And then in the book, we have Rahela who is, without going into too much detail, essentially Rosman's daughter. We won't go into how exactly that comes to pass. And Rahela, well, at the moment you say this, the child has had been a refugee all of her life and had endured displacement without complaining. And this is sense of like, this is somebody who never had the stability to be, to be fragmented in the first place, I suppose. And one thing that I suppose is quite inspiring or at least hopeful in the story is the is Rahela and is the, the the life force that she possesses and the way she is able to be in a fragmenting world in a way that again without going into too much detail Pinto struggles with through the entire book and looks for and looks for ways to appease it is in that sense is Rahela perhaps the, the, the fundamentally modern character in the book like she is the one most suited to, to inhabit the world perhaps it is it is becoming the 21st century well yes but also in the more metaphysical sense, she's an embodiment of love between Pinto and Osman, right. and, and, and which is why she, she's their daughter. And this is, despite all these worlds crashing and rising, crashing and rising, one continuity through the, those cyclical catastrophes is love, love between Osman and Pinto, and then a love as embodied by, by Rahela, not biologically embodied, but she's imbued with their love mm. in ways that we will not describe. And so I, I wanted to, when in the original imagining of the proposal that I wrote, they were friends and their longing was for Sarajevo and they kept going away from it, but they kept longing for the city until it became an entirely mythological, yeah. like reverse El Dorado. And mm-hmm. so, and, but then I realized and it was got to be a steady pitch of nostalgia, be rising and, until it became delusional. And that was not quite, I don't know why I was thinking, but I, this was more appealing to me that if they were lovers then their love, they would long for each other. Mm. And by by extension, Sarajevo, perhaps. But this longing could get them through the worlds that are crashing and rising, crashing and rising. And then that allowed for the presence of Rahela in the narrative, who is this child that survives only because they love her. Mm-hmm. There's no protective structure around her at any time other than love of Pinto mm-hmm. and, and Osman by extension. And so yeah. I 
I, this is what this was what I ended up with when I when I changed my mind with about the structure that we would not we would not be friends but lovers, and, and so that love is the stable thing, right? And it's mm-hmm. I guess let me say it I don't believe in God I believe that these crashes and of the world crashing and rising it's it's history and human inability to sustain things for whatever reason, except in terms of love. We have this paradoxical species that are capable of the horrible, most unimaginable, terrible thing and capable of loving people in the midst of it all. Mm-hmm. And that's that's amazing, which is beyond biological. I mean, there's mm-hmm. survival and you protect your you know young ones to perpetuate the species and all that. But I wanted to diffuse, and it's not that I wanted it, but that is diffused by the fact that Rahel is an embodiment of queer love. She's mm-hmm. not a, 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 a consequence of reproduction between the two yeah. of them. She exists because it lives because they loved her, particularly Pinto, and Pinto yeah. largely. And I wanted to establish that, that love mm-hmm. can sustain us through all that, mm-hmm. nothing else. And so I guess I guess my, my final question connected to that, and because we brought up the subject earlier and I did want to come back to it, is this this question of home in a way, which, of course, you know, you used the term nostalgia a moment ago. And of course, you know, with Ulysses, again, very much in mind, this idea of the nostos, this idea of the journey home, uh, you know, whether it be Odysseus or whether it be Leopold Bloom or whether it be Pinto. There's sort of, is there in some way, I guess, the great Venn diagram, a, a mapping of this concept of love and this concept of home for you, because Rahela, in a sense, doesn't have a home in the way that a physical home, a city or a house in the way that many of us conceive of home. And yet, in a strange way of all of the characters, you know, particularly in the late stages of the book, she is the most at home of them all. Well, I think if you think of home as a physical place, that it is... How would I put it? That, that if you don't have access to that place, then there's never, will always be not at home. And of course, that mm-hmm. happens to people a lot. That is, you will never, you might never feel that you're part of any community out, out, or group of people outside of that home. And that, of course, happens to people. But it's also true that people leave those places with the ones that they love and then keep going. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I, we have all seen the images of people on the boats holding their children mm-hmm. and they're risking their lives and the lives of their children, but not because they're cruel or because they want to, you know, I don't know, form the British shores or whatever, but because they love those children and they also want to live. And so I, it's my little theory of metaphysical theory of migration is that we are biologically inclined to move toward a space in which we believe we'll have greater agency. And I don't mean political agency or money, but I mean where we'll have greater control of our lives. Mm. And in those lives, the primary need is rooted in love. I want Mm. my children to live and I want them to be happy and have food and and have food first and then happy. If they have food and unhappy, that's better than being happy (laughs) and not having food. And so... This, how would I put it? The, the 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 context of love and agency was was interested me. Pinto is in some ways entirely helpless in the world that constantly crashes, and he's but a a target for great historical projects, mm-hmm. right? But his all of his agency in the world, all of his decisions are in some way organized around his love for Rahela, or Osman first, and then then Rahela. 
Mm-hmm. And that's what makes him a person of, of great importance in that world, right? Not a general who sends 100,000 people to die or, you know, the great genius who constructed some a new empire or whatever. But this, to me, this is the amazing thing that humans do. We love in ways that other, spe- other species love their little ones too, but we have a whole world of literature about loving others. Despite all the horrible things that we're doing daily, that is, <laughs> that is amazing to me. Yeah. Well, that seems like the the perfect place to to leave it. As I said at the beginning, the world and all that it holds is such an extraordinary book. It's such a such a journey we take with with Pinto, Osman, Rahela, and all of the other characters. We haven't we haven't had time to uh, to talk about. It. I mean, I'm disappointed we didn't get onto Major Moser Ethering. So our le- our readers will have to them on their own on their own accord. Of course, it is available from Shakespeare and Company. We have stacks of it. It's available in the bookstore. It's available from our website. It's available from your local independent bookstore wherever that may be. Alexander Hammond, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I hope to see you in Paris at the bookstore. With great pleasure. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>